Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. And today I'll be covering the case of the boy in the box in Fox Chase, Philadelphia. Let's get right to it. According to AmericasUnknownChild.net, in 1957, Susquehanna Road was nothing more than a narrow country road in the Fox Chase section of Northeast Philadelphia. Only approximately a half a mile in length, the road was just a cut-through that linked Pine Road on the west with Vary Road on the east. At the time, nobody lived out that way. There were just patches of woods and open fields. The only sign of civilization back then was the Sisters of the Good Shepherd School for Wayward Girls. The school adjoined Susquehanna Road on the north, and a driveway for the facility was located roughly 500 yards west of the intersection of Susquehanna and Vary Roads. Almost directly across the street from the entrance to the Good Shepherd School was a wooded area with thick underbrush. This area was frequently used by locals as a place to discard trash. So often, in fact, that there were two well-worn footpaths through the thick brush. It was at the intersection of those two footpaths that a grisly discovery was made, a discovery that would set off an investigation spanning six decades and require more police manpower than any case in Pennsylvania's history. It all began on February 26, 1957. According to an article in Front Page Detective magazine from November of 1957, written by Bryce McIntyre, at 10.10 a.m., a phone call came in to Philadelphia Homicide Sergeant Charles Gargani. On the other end of the line was 27-year-old Frederick Benoit. Frederick told the sergeant that two weeks earlier, while driving through Fox Chase, he pulled his car over to chase a rabbit, which had hopped into the weeds along Susquehanna Road, near where it meets Vary. He wasn't able to find the rabbit, but while on the side of the road, he noticed some muskrat traps. The traps weren't set, so he decided to set two of them. According to Saturday Evening Post, Frederick returned about two weeks later, on February 25th at around 3.15 in the afternoon, just the day prior to calling police. He had returned to check the traps and see if he had caught anything. The traps were empty, but while out there in the field, he had noticed a three-foot-long cardboard box about 15 feet from Susquehanna Road in the intersection of the two footpaths. 
The box looked new, so he walked over and peered inside. Inside the cardboard box, Frederick saw what appeared to be a doll, or possibly a small child, wrapped in a tattered blanket. According to the police report obtained by the outlet, he did not notify the police or anyone else for fear of, quote, becoming involved in some tragedy. This man just left the scene and went on about his day. Frederick was a college student at nearby LaSalle College, so the next day, as he was driving to school, he heard a radio broadcast about a little girl who police believed had been kidnapped in New Jersey. His mind flashed back to what he had seen in the box along Susquehanna Road. What if it was her? When he arrived at the school, he went and talked with two faculty counselors and a priest, seeking advice on what he should do next. Of course, all of them told him he should call the police and report what he had found. So he did. Sergeant Gargiani knew all about the girl missing from New Jersey, too. Her name was Mary Jane Barker, and she was just four years old. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, Mary Jane had vanished almost exactly 24 hours before Sergeant Gargani's phone had rang. A massive search was already underway in Belmar, New Jersey, and the story was hitting the news all around the Northeast and beyond. Realizing this caller just might have been onto something, Sergeant Gargani sent two detectives and the chief medical examiner, Dr. Joseph Spellman, over to the location. They were met with a handful of uniformed officers to assist in the search. According again to that article in Front Page Detective, after only 15 minutes of searching, they found the box just where Frederick said they would, at the intersection of the two footpaths surrounded by scattered trash. A quick look inside the box confirmed the sergeant's suspicions. This was no doll, but it wasn't Mary Jane Barker either. Inside the box, detectives discovered the nude body of a young boy wrapped in a blanket. Mary Jane Barker was later located deceased. Her death was ruled a tragic accident, although there are many who to this very day believe that there was foul play involved in her death. But that's another story for another day. Back to the scene. Dr. Spellman looked over at the boy's body. He quickly determined that the boy was between the ages of four and six. There were bruises on the child's face, stomach, and legs. It was obvious from the bruises and the way the child's body had been discarded that this was no accident. This child had been murdered. Officers and detectives began to process the crime scene. They took note of the cardboard box that the boy had been found in. It was simply marked furniture, fragile, handle with care, but did have a serial number, one that detectives would later track down, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. The blanket found with the boy had what appeared to be a Native American type print, patterned with diamonds and blocks in green, rust, and white. The colors had begun to fade, and the blanket had been cut and restitched along one end. A 31 by 26 inch piece was missing, and the stitches on the altered end appeared to have been made with a cotton type thread and sewn on a home sewing machine. 
A blue corduroy men's size 7 and 1 eighths Ivy League cap was found 30 feet from the body. There was tissue paper stuffed into the sweatband. 200 feet from the body along Vary Road, police searchers found a pile of clothing for a woman and a child. However, the clothing appeared to be too small to have belonged to the boy in the box. Investigators also located a white handkerchief embroidered with the letter G, a dead cat wrapped in a man's sweater, and a child's scarf, and that was the short list. Since this location was a dumping site, there was plenty of trash strewn throughout the area, making it hard for investigators to decipher if items at the scene were simply trash or evidence that would help lead them to their killer. The medical examiner wasted no time completing the autopsy of the child's body. That very night, he performed the examination and confirmed what everyone was thinking. The child had been brutally beaten. Blunt force trauma to his head was ultimately his cause of death. And that wasn't all. His tiny body was emaciated. The little boy was 40 inches tall and just 30 pounds with a full set of baby teeth, putting him between four and six. But because he was so malnourished, it was hard to narrow down the age any further. Dr. Spellman also concluded that all of the child's injuries had occurred at the same time, and not all of them were due to blunt force trauma. While that was his cause of death, the other bruises and injuries were caused by squeezing, shaking, or pulling. And further, his light brown hair had been very crudely shaven, either right after or just prior to his death, seemingly to conceal his identity. There were so many clumps of hair clinging to his torso, the medical examiner believed the child was nude when his head had been shaven. There were four bruises near the top of the child's head that resembled finger marks, suggesting that he might have been forcefully held down possibly while his head was shaven. According to Philly Mag, aside from the bruises and clumps of hair, his body was relatively clean. Even his nails had been recently trimmed. The skin of his right hand and both feet were pruny, as if they had been in water immediately before or after death. There was an L-shaped scar under his chin and at some point someone in his life had cared enough about the boy to seek medical treatment. The medical examiner noted a healed hernia operation scar on his groin and an intravenous cut-down scar on his ankle, likely from a blood transfusion. There was also something noted about the child's left eye. When exposed to ultraviolet light, the boy's left eye fluoresced a bright shade of blue indicating recent exposure to a diagnostic dye that was used in the treatment of chronic eye disease. There was no trace of vaccine scars, something that would have been common back then, the most notable coming from a smallpox vaccine. This led the medical examiner to believe the boy had never been enrolled in public school, because if he had, the vaccine would have been required. With all the evidence of medical treatment, it appeared that at one time, Someone cared for the child, or at least they cared enough to take him to a doctor. But now? There were no reports of a missing child in the area that matched the boy's description or age. Nobody was looking for this little boy.
Investigators knew in order to catch a child's killer, they'd first have to figure out who he was. Their attention turned to the man who had called in the tip. According to Historic Mysteries, police didn't buy Frederick Benoit's story about chasing a rabbit down a path or fooling with muskrat traps. And as it turned out, he had a history of visiting Susquehanna Road to spy on the young women at the Good Shepherd School for Wayward Girls. If he was making up the whole hopping down the bunny trail story, they wanted to know if he could be lying about something else. Benoit was questioned extensively by detectives and voluntarily submitted to a lie detector test, which he passed. He may have been a creep, but police didn't think he was their killer. With Frederick crossed off their suspect list, they turned their attention to the evidence found on the child's body and at the scene. They traced the serial numbers from the cardboard box and learned that the box originally contained a white baby bassinet, 11 of which had been sold for $7.50 a piece at the Upper Darby J.C. Penney at 69th and Chestnut, sometime between December 3, 1956 and February 16, 1957. Investigators actually managed to track down nine of the 11 people who had bought the bassinets. And remember, this was far before credit cards and digital purchase records. Detectives had gone to great lengths, but unfortunately, it led nowhere. They traced the blue corduroy cap to the Robbins Bald Eagle Hat and Cap Company in South Philly. According to Saturday Evening, the owner of that shop was Miss Hannah Robbins, and she certainly remembered that particular cap. Several months earlier, she had sold it to a man between the ages of 26 and 30, who wore working clothes and didn't speak with any type of foreign accent. She recalled the interaction because the cap found near the scene had a leather strap and buckle, one that didn't come standard with the original. She had added them to the cap at the request of the man. Unfortunately, it had been a cash sale and she had no record of the man's name. And further, she had never seen him prior to the purchase of the hat or at any time after. It was another dead end. But detectives were far from giving up. They took photographs of the boy and the cap and paid a visit to 143 businesses in the area but there was not a single person who remembered either the boy nor a man wearing that cap. According to Mysteries Unsolved, they turned to the surgical scars on the child's body, visiting local hospitals, pouring through records, looking for any young male patients that had been treated for hernias or given blood transfusions. Footprints and fingerprints were also taken from the boy and compared to footprints taken at birth from children in the local area. Detectives paid a visit to every institution, orphanage, and foster care facility in the vicinity. But again, it led them precisely nowhere. Hey guys, this week I want to introduce you to another one of my favorite true crime podcasts. Have you heard of the podcast Military Murder yet? If not, where have you been? Military Murder is hosted by a 12-year veteran, former military attorney, 
and one of the most incredible humans I know, the one and only Mama Margot. Nobody tells it quite like she does, so let's listen in as she tells us a little bit about it. Military Murder is a true crime show that pulls back the curtain on true crime cases in the military. Some of these cases get media attention, while others are swept quietly under the rug. Two years ago, the disappearance and subsequent murder of Vanessa Guillen placed military crime in the spotlight. Everyone was horrified that something like this could happen on a military installation. Vanessa's murder and her family's fight for justice brought these cases to the forefront. And that's where I pick up to tell you everyone else's story. As a 12-year veteran and former military attorney myself, I dig into cases just like Vanessa's, cases that occur around the world at the hands of soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen. But most of the cases I cover, you've never even heard of. New episodes of Military Murder are available every other Monday, and with over 100 plus episodes and counting, you will have plenty of content to binge. Now go on and listen to Military Murder Podcast. Over 300 officers flooded the area the boy's body had been found in, going door to door and questioning neighbors and anyone they ran into. That's when they came across a boy named John Porausnik. As it turned out, those muskrat traps Frederick Benoit claimed he had been fooling with when he discovered the boy in the box belonged to John. According to Saturday Evening Post, John Porausnik was an 18-year-old junior in high school whose family had settled down in Fox Chase after emigrating from Poland. He had set roughly 19 traps in those fields. But since the hunting season was coming to a close, he hadn't been regularly checking them. But he had been in the area just the day before the other guy, and a full two days before that other guy had called the tip into authorities. According to what John told investigators, on Sunday, February 24th, he was riding his bike to a nearby church to play basketball when he saw the box in the field. According to a police report, he thought it looked suspicious, got off his bike, and walked up to the box. After he approached it, he reached down with his right hand, lifted the top of the box up toward him, at which time he saw the body of what he called a baby and a blanket. He immediately dropped the box, got on his bicycle, and went back home, and never mentioned this to anyone. The discovery of a child's body seems like a hell of a thing to keep to yourself. But John's family had recently fled from Poland after World War II. The idea of involving themselves with police wasn't exactly on the top of their list of things to do. The invasion of Nazi Germany into their country wasn't some distant memory for John and his family. This was something they lived through. To make matters worse, a few months prior, John's brother had found a man who had hung himself in a field. Of course, investigators had questioned John's brother, likely just trying to piece together what they could of the apparent suicide. But that questioning had understandably upset the family. It appeared John didn't want to put that added stress on them again, so he hadn't reported seeing the child in the field. Now, speaking with investigators, he told them everything he knew. The medical examiner was having a hard time determining the exact time of death 
and when the child had been discarded in the field. You see, it was winter in Philadelphia, and the temperatures had dipped below freezing, which slowed down any decomposition of the body. That combined with the fact that the cardboard box was pretty sturdy and had shielded the boy's body from the elements made it difficult to place an exact date. But now, officials could say with certainty that the child had been there at least 48 hours and possibly up to a week or two. As investigators continued their attempts to identify the boy, they turned to the media for help. In what some considered controversial, the Philadelphia Inquirer printed off over 400,000 flyers containing post-mortem photos of the child's face, photos of the blanket, and the blue corduroy cap, along with details about the boy and the area in which he had been found. The flyers were posted all over Philadelphia, distributed on street corners, posted in shops, and even sent out with every gas bill in the city. Captain David Roberts was quoted in that article in Front Page Detective magazine. He said, We're off to a slow start. No one seems to have recognized him from the early newspaper stories, and our records don't show any child of that description missing. Not much physical evidence to work on. None of his clothes were found. All we have are the box and the blanket. That flyer did bring in tips but none of them led to this child's name. So investigators had an idea. If they could make the child appear to look like he had in life, it might spark someone's memory. According to KWY News Radio, a detective from the Philadelphia Police Department donated clothes that were his own children's to dress the boy in. The child was dressed in a white button-down shirt, dark vest, dark corduroys, and black shoes. His body was posed into a natural sitting position, and more photos were taken. A sketch artist was also brought in. The artist drew a picture of the boy in color and with a smile. The sketch looked like it could have been his school photo. Tips did continue to come in. Several people came forward claiming they knew who the boy was. Officials allowed them to view the child's body at the morgue in hopes that someone would identify him. There were several leads detectives followed that at the time they thought were pretty promising. One of those was about a little boy named Stephen. Halloween day two years prior, three-year-old Stephen Craig Damon vanished from a Long Island grocery store. According to the Charlie Project, Stephen's mom Marilyn was in a hurry and only needed to pop into the store and grab a loaf of bread. Instead of taking her two children, three-year-old Stephen, and her infant daughter Pam into the store with her, she left them just outside the door of the grocery store. She was only gone for a matter of minutes, but when she returned, they were both gone. Pam was found safe and sound in her stroller just a few blocks away. But three-year-old Stephen... There was no trace of him, and at this point, he had been missing for nearly two years. The age and description of the boy in the box fit, down to small scars on both of their chins. But the footprints didn't match, and neither did x-rays of the unidentified boy's arm. 
Stephen Damon had previously suffered a fracture to his left arm, but the child found near Susquehanna Road had no evidence of a healed fracture. The boy in the box wasn't Stephen Damon, and little Stephen remains missing to this day. Chief Detective Inspector John J. Kelly spoke to Front Page Detective Magazine and revealed that six people came forward and claimed the boy in the box was an eight-year-old boy who had lived in Camden, New Jersey. Three days before the unidentified child had been discovered, the eight-year-old boy and his father had up and left their home in Camden, and seemingly no one knew where they had gone. The father had quite the criminal record, and the witnesses were even more convinced after viewing the child's body that this was that eight-year-old boy. A detective with the homicide unit stated, Maybe it's not the same boy, but if it's not, this is one of the most amazing instances of direct similarity we've ever encountered. Those tipsters were so convincing, Inspector Kelly actually sought the arrest of the father on, quote, investigation in connection with homicide. A few days later, the father called relatives in Pennsylvania and told them the boy was safe with him. Those relatives spoke to the child over the phone and were sure it was the eight-year-old boy. The father wouldn't give up their location likely due to the fact that he was accused of running out on some debts he owed in Pennsylvania. The child's mother, who lived in a nearby Pennsylvania city, was brought to Philadelphia by police to view the body. She said it wasn't her son. There was also a young Marine who had recently returned from overseas, who viewed the boy in the morgue and, quote, almost positively identified him as his younger brother. But it wasn't him, and that Marine's little brother was soon located safe in California. Time after time and name after name, but still no one could identify the boy. Roughly a month after the discovery, tips began to fizzle out, and after five months, his story faded from the headlines. His body was still there in the morgue, unidentified. But detectives with the Philadelphia police had not forgotten. Many of them were fathers themselves, and even the most seasoned amongst the crew were profoundly affected by what they had witnessed at the crime scene and the fact that this child was still there lying in a morgue without a name months later. Something about the boy in the box tugged at their heartstrings. Despite all their efforts, they couldn't identify him. But there was one thing they could do, and that was to give him a proper burial. According to Front Page Detective Today, Philadelphia officers and detectives collected money to provide the boy with services. On July 24, 1957, roughly a dozen detectives gathered together in a Philadelphia city cemetery. Three of them and a member of the medical examiner's office acted as pallbearers, carrying the tiny white casket with red roses on top and a card that read, from the members of the homicide squad. Captain Warren F. Guthriel, chaplain of the 4th Naval District in Philadelphia, spoke at the graveside service, stating, All funeral services are sad, but this one is particularly so because it is for a blue-eyed, 
brown-haired boy whose name we do not know. Nor do we know why or by whose foul hands his life was exterminated. But we do know he has real friends, for they were unwilling to have him buried without appropriate service. The boy's tombstone read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. His grave was the only one with a marker. Since he was unidentified, his body unclaimed, he was laid to rest in plot number 191 in a potter's field on Dunksferry Road. A potter's field is a burial site for people who cannot afford a burial, are unidentified, unclaimed, or criminals whose bodies aren't claimed by their families. There aren't many visitors to the graves of those laid to rest in a potter's field. But this unknown child's grave was visited by detectives and members of the community who came to leave flowers, toys, light candles, and tend the boy's grave. Over the years, tips did continue to trickle in, and there were countless theories about who the boy was and what had happened to him. The case changed hands multiple times as the original detectives retired or were reassigned. With each new case assignment, there was hope that the boy's case could be solved. According to American Way magazine, the second officer on the scene, Sam Weinstein, had made a silent promise all those years ago as he stood over the cardboard box looking in at the boy's body. He would do everything he could to find the child's killer. But after 40 years of service with the Philadelphia Police Department, he wasn't able to hold the child's killer responsible. This was something that haunted Sam even after his retirement from the force in 1985. Fast forward 10 years or so, and Sam Weinstein was now a member of the VDOC Society. What is the VDOC Society? I'm so glad you asked. According to VDOC.org, the society was founded in 1990 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to assist law enforcement in the resolution of long unresolved homicides. It's named after Eugene Francis Vidoc, a French criminal who became a detective. There are 82 members of the group, one symbolizing each year of Vidoc's life. Its members are made up of volunteer forensic experts and investigators, like profilers, criminologists, forensic scientists, medical examiners, active and retired law enforcement agents, prosecutors, polygraph examiners, and that's just to name a few. Those members act as confidential consultants to assist law enforcement in solving difficult cold cases. And they do this all for free 99, never seeking public recognition or compensation for their work. I mean, to be a fly on the wall for one of their monthly meetings, soaking in all that knowledge. A girl can dream, right? Anyhow, Sam Weinstein and the VDOC Society decided to take another crack at the case. In 1998, they led a movement to have the boy's body exhumed in order to extract DNA. I mean, after all, so many advancements in forensic science had been made in the 40 years that had passed. According to a press conference held by the Philadelphia Police Department, on October 30, 1998, a court order was obtained to have the child's body exhumed for DNA testing. That testing was completed, 
but unfortunately, it did not lead to a positive identification, although it did lead to renewed public interest and an awareness of the 40-year-old case. According to America's UnknownChild.net, the story of the boy in the box was featured on America's Most Wanted on October 3, 1998. This generated over 150 new tips and inspired a group of private citizens to create the America's Unknown Child website, which, let me just say, is an incredible source of information on this case. The website, headed by George Knowles, has everything you could ever want to know about the boy in the box, including photographs, maps, archived news reports, and the many theories developed throughout this investigation. I relied heavily on the site for research on this case. This investigation spanned decades, and there is no possible way I could present every theory or detail all the work of the dedicated individuals who have given their time and efforts to solving this mystery. So if you're looking for more information, americasunknownchild.net is where you want to go. I'll be sure to link it in the show notes. Back to the story. After the DNA testing failed, in November of 1998, the child's body was laid to rest once again, this time at Ivy Hill Cemetery and Mount Airy. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, at least 100 people attended this graveside service. A new black granite marker inscribed with a lamb and a new name. America's unknown child marked the boy's grave. Bill Flesher of the VDOC Society spoke, stating, Today we are reinterring him and calling him America's unknown child as a symbol of our nation's abused children, missing children, and murdered children. We are validating this little boy's life. Our mission is to go forward from this day and put a name on that tombstone. I want you to remember that man's words. They'll be important later. For six decades, the unsolved case of the boy in the box had been continually investigated. And as time had passed, even more advancements had been made in forensic science, especially when it came to DNA. According to a press conference held by the Philadelphia police, homicide investigators and medical examiners within the department met and conducted a review of crimes involving unidentified victims to determine which of those may benefit from modern forensic techniques. It was decided that case OME number 57-0863, otherwise known as the boy-in-the-box case, could benefit. When the child's body had been exhumed in 1998, portions of his remains were stored in hopes that they could be used down the road for further testing. But as we know, DNA degrades over time, and what was left was determined to be insufficient. So on April 29th of 2019, an additional court order was obtained to have the boy's body exhumed again. Forensic anthropologist Dr. Washburn examined the remains and obtained enough DNA to apply modern forensic techniques. And this time, it worked. It took a little over two years and the help of genetic genealogy. But on Thursday, December 8th, 2022, 
a press conference was held to reveal to the world the name of the child that had for so long simply been referred to as the boy in the box or America's unknown child. This was the moment, the one everyone had waited on for decades. Philadelphia Police Captain Jason Smith detailed the steps his department and so many others had taken to finally give this boy his identity back. After Dr. Washburn had successfully extracted that DNA, the Philadelphia police sought the help of Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick and Identifinders International, which specializes in forensic genetic genealogy. However, with DNA samples that were over 60 years old, this was not going to be an easy task, even for modern forensic scientists. Dr. Fitzpatrick would later call the case the most challenging of her career. And a quick glimpse into her career and her level of education, and that's saying a lot. Her resume includes working for NASA and the Department of Defense. And that's before she became a pioneer in the field of genetic genealogy. Genius doesn't even begin to describe her. Anyhow, for two years, Dr. Fitzpatrick and her team worked to get that DNA in shape to be viable for testing. And eventually, they did. The DNA was uploaded to all the DNA databases, and those results were interpreted by genealogists, which led to possible relatives on the boy's maternal side. The genealogists and detectives worked together, and investigators were able to make contact with those possible relatives on the maternal side of the boy's family. And after a little bit more testing, they were able to establish the birth mother of the boy in the box. Unfortunately, by this point, she was deceased. So it wouldn't be as simple as comparing her DNA with the child's in order to make the identification. A court order was then obtained for all birth, death, and adoption records of all children born to the established birth mother from 1944 to 1956 from the Pennsylvania Department of Health. There were three birth certificates located. Detectives made contact with two of the children, who of course were now adults. One willingly provided DNA and the other had been previously matched by genealogists. The third birth certificate was for a male child born in 1953, which was consistent with the age of the boy in the box. After all these years, detectives were finally looking at the name of the child found discarded in that box in black and white. They had found his birth certificate. But they wanted to be absolutely sure this was their boy. Fortunately, the name of the child's birth father was listed on the certificate as well. However, according to Captain Jason Smith, as he spoke at the press conference, the father's name on the birth certificate was not exact, but it was close enough that investigators were able to track down relatives on the boy's paternal side as well. After more testing, it was established that this man was in fact the father of the child. There were genealogical connections made to cousins on both sides of the family that could have only been connected through the father. But unfortunately, the father was deceased as well. Investigators also discovered that a social security number had never been issued for the child, 
The only record they had of this child's existence was his birth certificate. But that birth certificate had a name. Their findings were presented to the medical examiner, Dr. Robert Chu, so that the child's death certificate would be amended to reflect his birth name and he would officially be identified. Homicide investigators Detective Bob Hesser and Detective Greg Santamala, as well as Forensics Laboratory Manager Ryan Gallagher, met with Dr. Albert Chu of the Medical Examiner's Office. Dr. Chu was apprised of the aforementioned facts. Dr. Chu also consulted with the uh, genetic genealogists involved in this investigation. Dr. Chu indicated that based on the facts presented and the conclusions of the genetic genealogists, the death certificate for the unknown child, OME number 57-0863, would be amended to reflect the child's birth name, Joseph Augustus Zorelli. Joseph's date of birth is January 13th, 1953. And just like that, America's unknown child had finally been given his name back, Joseph Augustus Zorelli. Let's talk for just a moment about how the DNA on the child's maternal side had made its way into a DNA database in the first place, which had helped unravel this entire case. Because it almost didn't. I know I keep getting a little sidetracked, but I can't not tell y'all this part of the story. It wasn't revealed at the press conference, but it was detailed in an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. We'll have to take it on back to just before Christmas of 2017, when Justin Thomas was doing a little online Christmas shopping spree. Amazon had a hot deal on an Ancestry.com DNA kit, and he thought it would make a great gift for his girlfriend, so he ordered it for her. But Thomas's girlfriend wasn't his girlfriend when December 25th rolled around. They had decided to go their separate ways, and she missed out on one hell of a gift. I guess she never got the memo that you're supposed to wait until after Christmas to break up, or maybe he dumped her. Hell, I don't know. Anyhow, Thomas didn't want the kit to go to waste, so he decided to use it himself. He learned that the majority of his distant relatives were from Italy, and added a few more names to his family tree. It was cool and all, but he hadn't really thought much more about it. That was until a couple of years later when he got a call from a forensic genealogist and was told that he was a match for a cold case and that they needed his help to identify the victim. So he agreed to help. He got a sample of his mother's DNA and sent it off. It wasn't until after the press conference and the announcement that the boy in the box was Joseph Augustus Zarelli that he remembered that the Zarelli family name was in his family tree, and he had spoken to a genealogist from Identifinders, otherwise known as the agency who identified the boy in the box. Thomas's little ancestry DNA kit had helped in a 65-year-old cold case. As it turned out, his mother is likely Joseph's first cousin. Back to that press conference. Investigators never revealed publicly who Joseph's birth parents were out of respect for his surviving siblings, but they continued to interview family members hoping for another break in this case. They did reveal that they have an article of clothing 
that was left at the crime scene that they are currently examining for possible DNA. Once the identification was made public, speculation immediately ran rampant over social media and on forums on who Joseph's parents were and new theories on what happened to him, most of them blaming his parents. Some even posting photos of who they believed the parents to be and harassing suspected members of the family, who were literal children at the time. That's just crazy, and I know y'all would never do such a thing, but that's what's happening. I mean, placing blame in the direction of the parents isn't a far stretch. Joseph Sorelli was never reported missing. No one came forward to identify him. He didn't have a social security number. And statistically speaking, children are at a much higher risk of being harmed by parents or caregivers rather than a stranger. If it walks and talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. I get it, trust me. However, it is possible Joseph's birth parents gave him up for adoption or any number of things. The truth is, at this point, we just don't know. And as far as that whole lack of a social security number thing goes, because at first, that seemed really suspicious. But I did a little research and learned that according to SSA.gov, enumeration at birth didn't become a thing until 1987. Before then, it was common for a social security number to be issued later in life. That could help explain the lack of records when it comes to this case. But even further than that, those who have worked so hard on Joseph's case over all these years are asking that we leave speculation out of the equation. I'll read you the words of the VDOC Society posted to their Facebook page. Please remember that the Joseph Augustus Sorelli case remains an active homicide investigation. The assigned detectives are both capable and diligent, and we need to let them do their jobs. Speculation is dangerous and can cause harm to people who may be completely innocent of any wrongdoing. If someone knows something, facts, not speculation, then they should contact PPD Homicide and provide their information. And with that, let's get down to the facts of what we do know. Joseph Augustus Sorelli was beaten to death sometime between mid to late February of 1957. He was four years old at the time of his murder. His family lived in West Philadelphia, specifically the area of 61st and Market Street. He had at least two siblings that we know of on his maternal side, and investigators have revealed that he had siblings on his paternal side as well. There may be family members, neighbors, relative, or friends of the family who would be in their mid to late 70s or 80s today who may have had contact with Joseph and may remember the details surrounding his sudden absence. If you're from the area or any of these details seem familiar to you, ask your granddaddy. He might know something. I'm serious, y'all. 65 years have passed since Joseph Zarelli was murdered. That's nearly a lifetime. But it is possible that someone out there knows something. 
towards the end of the press conference, founder and commissioner of the VDOC Society, Bill Flesher, spoke. Good morning, everyone. Since February 1957, hundreds of investigators have worked to put their hearts and souls in solving the mystery of our little boy's identity and the circumstances of his death. death. Many of these men and women aren't with us anymore, but I feel their souls are standing here at this moment with us. Now our lad is no longer that boy in the box. He has a name, and I was raised to believe that when you say the name out loud of a loved one, that person still lives in spirit amongst us. Soon, through the good offices of Mr. Dave Drysdale and his team at the Ivy Hill Cemetery, the VDOC Society will put a name on that child's grave. Joseph Augustus Sorelli will no longer be that boy in the box and will no longer be unknown. I want to leave you today with the words of Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. After all, what can we hope for in life and death but to be buried under a stone carrying our own name? If you have any information about the murder of Joseph Augustus Sorelli, please contact Detective Robert Hesser at 215-686-3334. You can also call or text the tip line at 215-686-TIPS. There is a $20,000 reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'll be bringing you an all new case next week and I can't wait. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. 
First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 